Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war here soon, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows that because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away or you automatically are like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Book, don't be surprised when we start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids. We're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars of debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty dollars or $30,000 they borrow. They might pay two or $300,000 in their lifetime with all the competitive interest. Now here are your hackers of the week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back into the Snap Hook Podcast. Tim Costello, Scott Barzilla coming in live on this Tuesday night as we take in another week, the first week of the NFL. Astros playoff race, so much going on. And, and Scott and I looked at each other and said, you know what? We don't really want to talk about any of that this week. No, of course. Yeah, and in fact, if, if uh, anybody's been paying attention to the Astros' performance against, as you know, one of the Houston Radio go, uh, guys calls the single A's, um, you'll see why we're skipping that this week. Yeah, it's been lackluster to say the least. Um, but that's okay because you and I, you know, kind of worked our way, you know, through a text conversation into a topic of, you know, being in the zone. Right. And it's, it's something that, you know, originally was, was thought to be a myth, right. You know, there's a study done in 1985, a group of, um, I think it was mathematicians came together and, and they did a study that I actually myself uh, replicated by uh, for the math fair in like seventh or eighth grade. But essentially they had a collection of basketball players shoot free throws. And there was no, each, each shot was, was not affected by the previous one, right? Like in their theory, you weren't more likely to hit the second shot if you hit the first, right? They broke them up into pairs of two, just like you would in a game. You're shooting a free throws two at a time. And over the course of 100 free throws for all these players, they found that, you know, in the for the season, the guy who's an 83% free throw shooter made about, you know, 83% of these shots. Uh, they happened in bunches and they missed in bunches. And so it wasn't necessarily a correlation they said it was mere happenstance but as time has evolved you know I, I think that theory number one has been debunked um for a variety of reasons but number two 
I think anybody who's ever watched sports can tell that that's just not true, right? That some guys just hit a point where they're in the zone. And and anybody who's ever watched a game in the world would be like, oh, wow, he's in the zone right now. You can't touch him. He's in the zone. And, and so that's, you know, that paired with some other findings disprove this theory. You know, and, and it got Scott and I were talking about the zone. You know, what is what is it to be in the zone? So uh, to kind of give a peel back the curtain here for uh, some people who are on the more data side of this is that you basically have what are, we would call tangibles and intangibles. And so tangibles are things we can measure. Intangibles are things we can't. And so if you look, uh, we've, we've, this has been mainly a baseball and a golf podcast, I would say. Uh, I think Tim would agree that, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're obviously both golfers and we're obviously baseball fans. I'd say Houston sports and golf, but we are mostly baseball fans and we've been in baseball, Stephen, for a while. But, you know, we've talked some Rockets. We've talked some a good fair amount of Texans as well. So the example I would give would be pitch framing. Uh, back in the 90s, I think pe- people knew <coughs> that pitch framing was a thing. They just couldn't measure it. They didn't know how. So they called it an intangible. So like when we were talking about Brad Osmus back in the 90s, everybody kind of knew he was a great defensive catcher. But the defensive metrics at the time really couldn't measure that. And so unfortunately, he didn't get credit until maybe the very end of his career uh, when they started to figure out, okay, maybe we can measure this thing. And and the same thing is true of clutch performance. Uh, Bill James back in the 70s and, and 80s basically said clutch performance does not exist. However, Tim has watched enough baseball. I've watched enough baseball. When we watch David Ortiz run through the postseason, just absolutely torch, you know, say the Yankees and, you know, the other teams in the postseason, yeah, we, we know clutch performance exists. When we watch Reggie Jackson hit three home runs, well, we didn't personally watch it, but, you know, when people watched him hit three home runs in, the, in a game in the World Series, yeah. When we're watching Jose Altuve, I think it was the first game of the ALDS. I can't remember which year it was. Maybe it was 2018 or 19, where he hit three home runs in the, in the first game of the ALDS. It's like, yeah, clutch hitting exists. Clutch performance exists. But also, I think, you know, the zone definitely exists. And anybody who's done any athletic uh, endeavor, uh, any kind of a serious level, knows it exists. And it doesn't matter what sport you're doing. There, there is that moment where you're just at absolute peak performance. And, and I, don't, I can't speak for Tim, but I can speak for myself. It's not something that I consciously think about. It, it, it's, it's the opposite. It just happens. Because if you're thinking about it, the zone's gone, you're out of the zone. I mean, you kind of just have to can just you know enjoy it while it lasts is basically you know how I've been able to to figure that out. And I think that's the difference too, as we get into this, because there is a difference between a guy who's clutch and a guy who's in the zone. you you know, a guy who's in the zone can't miss. And it is lasting for a, for a measured period of time versus a, a guy who's clutch 
it's always there. You get him in a situation where you need somebody, um, that's who you call to, right? Tom Brady, fourth quarter, down four points, ball in his hand, minute and a half left, two timeouts. He's clutch. Tiger Woods coming down 18 at at Torrey Pines, trailing uh, Rocco Mediate by a stroke, hits two of the worst golf shots of his career to put him in the right rough, hits a fatted wedge to 10 feet and drains the putt to force a playoff the next day on one leg because he's clutch. Scotty Scheffler going on the run of his life and winning his first tournament ever to winning the Masters and several in between in a month and a half span because he couldn't miss and literally was just in a zone, right? There's a difference between the guy who's always got it in his back pocket and the guy who's just can't miss right now, you know, and you made the great example of, of David Ortiz in the playoffs. David Ortiz is clutch too, right? Like that's a guy who you've got guys who are both, you know, I think, um, you know, someone like, like Jose Altuve, you mentioned another great example, 2017 against, against the Red Sox. To this day, one of my favorite calls of all time is on the third one, Bob Costas, as soon as it's off the bat, you want to join Babe Ruth on a list? Well, here you go. Three home runs in a game. Jose Altuve is as clutch as they come in the game today, but we've seen Jose Altuve in the zone multiple times in his career. We saw it that game. We saw it over a, you know, a two-game span where he, he hits you know five homers and six at-bats. We've seen guys get in the zone. But again, they still have that ability to be clutch. And I think what's what's baseball's I think the, the easiest one to measure is was when a guy's in a zone. You know, they call it just being hot, right? Like who's hot, who's not. Um but clutch is one that you kind of have to dig a little bit further into those into some of those deeper statistics and look into, you know, what are those clutch situations. And I think even as the game evolved, you know, Bill James is someone now, if you gave him the stats that we have today, he would have to agree with you that you can measure clutch. And they do. And, and if you go to baseball reference, they have, you know, low, medium and high leverage. Uh, so you can kind of measure that. And so they've been able to measure situations. Um, uh, and some of y'all may be hearing my dog in the background. I mean, he's in the zone right now. He's gotten a rawhide bone and and he can devour that thing in five minutes. It's, it's impressive. Uh, and he is definitely in the zone right now. But I think whenever you're looking at things athletically, and this is the thought that I that I came to, especially with the, the experiment that you laid out, I think there is a point where we get to, and in and, and economics, they talk about equilibrium. I think there is a mental and a physical equilibrium where you get to where everything is right. So, for instance, if I sat there and threw 300 balls uh, on the range and said, Tim, I want you to hit these 300 balls, there's going to be a point within that 300 balls where you are at your peak, where you're hitting the ball as good as you can possibly do it. And then there's going to be a point where fatigue starts to set in. And you're just like, I just can't, you know, I can't do this anymore. I can't hit the ball as far out there as, you know, as I was, you know, maybe earlier in this round of 300 balls. And it's kind of the same thing in every sport with shooting, with those free throws. I mean, you get a guy shooting 100, 200 free throws, there's going to be a fatigue factor that's going to come in and can play at some point. And so, you know, maybe when he's on free throw 50 or 60, he's at peak performance. 
But when you get them up to like free throw 150 and you're like, man, arms are getting a little bit tired. Uh, it, it's just concentration is not quite there. And so I, I, that's got to be a part of it too, where there's got to be a fatigue factor where things you just, you can't physically do it. Correct. And that's why eventually that, that theory is, is disproved, right? Because let's look at basketball, right? You tell me Kobe couldn't get hot, couldn't get in the zone. Like the, the night that he retired and, and drops, you know, 80 or whatever it was. <clears throat> you tell me he wasn't in the zone? Or the night he goes for 100, you're going to tell me he wasn't in the zone? Or he went for 81, he wasn't in the zone? Like, no. Guys get in the zone. They have heat checks. Like, that's why people literally, if you've ever watched an NBA game, some guys guys just jack up a deep three because they're like, I'm hot. Why not? Because they're in the zone and they're like, I'm feeling this. You know, and I, and I think to, to take it back to, to golf, you know, I, I, I to look at today, right? You know, I had a, a – today was the first day of the first tee. We're back out there. Um, you know, when we're playing the first tee, we play – some of the forward tees, so I don't hit a lot of driver, but I only hit on the par fives. Well, you know, I a first hole, I, I stripe a, a four iron, nip a wedge to a foot, tap in birdie. I'm like, oh, okay. Second hole, six iron right down the middle, uh, wedge, two putt par. Oh, okay. Third hole, driver, nine iron to 10 feet, two putt birdie. Like, okay. You know, last hole, driver, six iron, wedge, tap in birdie. Like, okay. Like, couldn't miss today. And it was stripe, stripe, stripe. And I didn't think about it, but I guarantee you it's not going to happen for the rest of my life. I was in the zone today and I knew it. I said it. Hey, I wish this was on a day I was keeping score. But, you know, as a four hole round with kids, but it happens, you know, it's happened. You know, and, and, and you hope that it's at least for an 18 hole stretch, right, Scott? Because you've everybody's got in the zone for seven, eight holes, went low. But how did you finish? It's the guys who can get in that zone for the 18 holes or even on these tour pros do three, four, five events. That's the, that's the big difference. Uh, you mentioned, um, you mentioned basketball. I, I did not play a lot of video games growing up because, you know, I was, you know, that was back in the Atari days and, you know, quite frankly, Atari basketball sucked. But, like, when you were playing, I don't know if you played any of, like, the NBA games later on where guys, like, literally would be on fire. I mean, and, and, and so the makers of the game. If you made three absolutely. baskets in a row, you got hot. Yeah, the, the makers of the game absolutely knew it was the case. Uh, so before, uh, before you became a fan, I think literally in your lifetime, but the Rockets championships, I think literally came in your lifetime, but probably before you were watching, I'm sure. Yeah, my uh, first my first memory in life is at the '95 championship parade. So, in that second championship, Kenny Smith in Game One against Orlando was just absolutely nuts. I think he had like eight or nine threes, including the three that tied the game. And you could see Brian Hill sitting there. We don't want to give up a three during the timeout. And there's Kenny Smith with an open look. And he's draining it. And Kenny Smith, you know, back in those days, uh, I had two nicknames for him. I would either call him Kenny Soft or Waldo, as in where's Waldo? Because there would be games where he would disappear, where he'd score like maybe four points and have like three assists. But he was a guy, and he had a weird shooting motion. The ball always came out weird. But he was a guy that, you know, every once in a while, maybe once every two weeks, 
would just come out and bury you with like 25 points because he just couldn't miss. And he would be that guy in the video game where the flame is right on top of his head and you were going to try to get him the ball no matter what. And so he was that guy. You know, to me, Dream was clutch and not necessarily zone. I mean, there were times Akeem was in the zone, but basically he was in the zone 90% of the time. I mean, he was just a great player. And that would be the difference. Uh, and, and the difference is some of those guys, you know, Robert Ory was another guy that we call him Big Shot Bob. You know, clutch. And, you know, just every once in a while could just start, start feeling it. And, and those are the guys. It's fun when you have those guys getting hot. And I think... Another great comparison too, right? Because you named Elijah on. And it's tough with these great ones, right? That when when are they in a zone, right? Or is this just normal production? I think when you look at, you know, Harden had a run in, I think it was like 2018 of consecutive 40-point games. Well, you want to talk about being in the zone, man. Like he lit everybody up for like a two month straight period where like you knew what was coming it is literally somebody on the mound yelling fastball hit it bro let's freaking go and no one could touch it and it's when you've got those superstars and you can see it on a whole nother level you're like man this guy's in a zone right now and in basketball it's it's typically in a stretch right like guys go through a stretch like Harden did but like, let's look at it from like a baseball perspective, right? Like, and I think you know, in, in baseball, it comes in in the no hitters and in the per- perfect games and things like that. Where look at a guy like Verlander or a guy like Nolan Ryan, where especially in their primes, you're always going to get a, a good start from that guy, right? You're going to get six, seven innings, one, two, three run baseball. But every now and then, you know, you get a little twinkle of something. And with Nolan, it was that every now and then it was a little more often than Verlander. But, like, you know, two or three times in Verlander's career, you got a little twinkle of something that, like, he's got a little something different today. He's in a zone. He's Something's going on here. And then you've got, you know, three no-hitters for Justin Verlander. And so with those top-end pitchers especially, they're always really, really good. They may not always be clutch because look at Verlander. Would some people say Verlander's clutch based on his playoff performance is probably not. But he's regular season. The guy is as good as they come. His standard of performance, you know, Cy Young winner last year, but he still has that whole nother level that he can get to when he's in the zone, which is no hits. Well, what's funny is uh, it is just the number of one hitters Nolan Ryan has had in his career. I mean, it's staggering. And I think he still might hold the record for lowest batting average against, um, at least for anybody like over a thousand innings. Um, I think a lot of this is because you mentioned Harden. The difference between Harden and Elijah is Harden had the ball. Harden is the primary ball uh, ball handler, so he can kind of force the action. To me, there was no more dominant performance I saw than Elijah won against the Spurs in the Western Conference Finals. I mean, and that was when David Robinson got the MVP award, and that was just about, you know, it, you had to be embarrassed for him. Yeah, uh, Hakeem, Hakeem, as he said, that's my MVP. Well, and, and he just, and but see, what's the thing is, is Hakeem doesn't have the ball. You got to get him the ball. 
So for him to average 40-plus in that series is more remarkable than, say, a Kobe or a Harden averaging 40-plus because they're bringing the ball up. So they can force the action. Still remarkable. Absolutely. Uh, but I think that's you, you hit on the difference. The difference is, is that you have those guys who are superior athletes who can just sit there and decide, I'm taking this game over. And Jordan would do that. I think Magic Johnson could do that. Uh, maybe not scoring. Now you're working in a clutch. Right. As you say I'm. I'm good. If you're one of those, like, and, and and totally valuable, but completely different, right? If you're one of those superior guys who can flip it on and say, "I'm going to take this game over," whether it be a, a football game when you're down twenty-eight to three in the Super Bowl, or you know the NBA Finals, and and you've got the ball in your hand with six seconds left, and you're down a point, right? Like. Either way, if you're one of those guys who can say, I'm going to go win this, and you do it, that's that clutch gene. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so here's where I think you know the big question is, is that so we have physical, like if I'm a scout, I've got physical tools. Like in, in baseball, they talk about five tools. I add a sixth tool in my mind for plate discipline. But I know most scouts don't do that. And then you have the more of the just the actual performance. But the third thing is, can you measure the psychological? That's the question. Can you look at a guy like and I think some cases they did like Bryce Harper was heavily scouted from high school on. I mean, everybody knew he was going to be the number one overall pick. And so everyone kind of knew he had that clutch just knew to him. But can you look at a kid who might be 15, 16, 17 years old, no matter what sport you're in, and sit there and see this kid has what it takes to be the best at his sport? Because it's hard. Because like say like Vince Young. Vince Young was definitely the best player on his high school field every game he played. When he was at UT, he was the best player on the field. And then in the NFL, it just didn't happen. I don't think we're far away from that, actually. Like, I really don't, because I think the longer that we let people play football, the more we're going to have to allow, like, technology to be involved in the helmets right like i think especially at the pro level at some point there's going to be like some sensors in the helmets that say like hey he got hit this hard he's got to come out or like hey uh we're measuring this brain wave after this hit he's out of the game so then at that point when you're when you've got a football helmet that's capable of measuring brain waves right like let's Mm -hmm. let's say 30 years from now like you could literally like see in the fourth quarter when Tom Brady Jr. is out there and he has a ball in his hands with two minutes. This is what his brain, this is what's, this is what part of the brain is lighting up, right? Like we can see this little section just glowing in the clutch time. I, I think maybe that would be the way that you measure that. I don't think, because, because like, let's say, because like Vince Young had clutch, like Vince Young was clutch. Vince Young lacked the other stuff that, got you to clutch time in the NFL, right? But anytime, like, I, I could think of, like, the, his return home to Houston where he literally, you know, took the ball down the field and, and and you know, had a game-winning drive. 
he had clutch moments in the NFL. He just wasn't consistently a good NFL quarterback because he couldn't read defenses. But he could clutch up in the moment and make a play and do what you need to do, as we saw in the national championship game. So, so I was going to mention, um, I mentioned to you in the text, but I didn't tell you exactly what it was. And I actually participated in an experiment, and we were trying to get it off the ground. We were actually trying to pitch it uh, to big league teams. There was a psychiatrist who developed basically what it was was a color test. And so he gave you a, a bank of colors, and you chose your pre- preferred colors. And based on that test, he was able to figure out how you would handle, like, where you would be most effective between low, medium, and high-pressure situations. No matter what, across, you know, whatever, like you're talking about sports or whatever. You know, it's kind of a fascinating deal. I don't know if it actually worked. Um, I mean, I took the test, and I don't know, um, you know, if it fit me or not. So I, I find that kind of interesting because, you know, the biggest thing like, and, and, and the examples that I have are the guys who we knew would definitely not handle it well. Like when you're talking about Jamarcus Russell, say, or Johnny Manziel, you knew the minute you handed that guy, those guys money, that it was going to be rough. So kind of the question is, and, and we're going to kind of get to um, some scumbags later on that, you know, I think will kind of fit this bill is what happens when you give a kid a bunch of money? How many of them are going to still perform, are still going to, you know, keep trying to get better? And how many of them are just going to say, screw it, I'm just going to live off, you know, this large nest egg? And in some cases, I think you can tell and you should be able to tell. And in some cases, you really can't. Yeah, and I agree with you, but I, I do think what you're talking about, is, it's really two different things at the end of the day. Um, but, you know, I don't know. It, it's tough because with, with with pro sports coming from college, there's such a jump that sometimes guys just don't have it, right? Like with Vince Young, I don't think I, – I think Vince Young's a great example because I don't think there was a lack of effort at any point on Vince Young's part. Like, I don't think he didn't put in the work. I don't think he didn't try and be that guy. I just don't think Vince Young was good enough at the end of the day. And it happens. It absolutely happens to a lot of people. But when you, you know, a guy like Jamarcus Russell, like he's one, like we'll never know if he was good enough because he didn't give a shit and he didn't try. So obviously like there are, tests and things you can do with that. And even the coaches in the, in the NFL and the GMs, in the NFL have their little tests. They do like, you know, putting the money in the, in the playbook or, you know, whatever, you know, little, little ways they can see if you actually read it, right. To see like what kind of guy this is, or, you know, I watched the Manziel documentary. They, they could track how much, how much iPad time he was using in the, in the app that had all the tape. So like they could see that he watched zero tape, uh, and somehow they convinced the Browns, like, no, that's a mistake. Like, no, that's a that's a malfunction. He watches tape, like, so you know, obviously that's an internal scouting process. But I think these guys that are clutch at the end of the day, as we circle back to that innate clutch gene, um, that's just something you have. And and 
<coughs> pardon me, the reason we started this was was Jose Abreu. You know, we were we were talking about guys who just seem to rise to the occasion, and and I think Abreu is the perfect example to wrap up the clutch discussion. He's a guy that this season is hitting two thirty seven, but when you have runners on base this season. Jose Abreu is a 273 hitter and 248 plate appearances. When you have runners in scoring position, Jose Abreu is a 282 hitter and 154 plate appearances. You know when he's not good? When no one's on base. He's terrible when no one's on base. And so that goes into that clutch gene. Because with two outs and runners in scoring position this year and 74 plate appearances, He's hitting 403. Some guys have that ability to focus in when they need to focus in. And that's kind of where I want to leave the the idea of clutch performances. But I do, Scott, you know, want to talk about some of our favorite. You've mentioned guys being in the zone. What are some of your favorite zones, right? Like what are some of the ones or stretches or hot, hot streaks or or runs, or, you know, whatever the vernacular for the sport is, everyone's got some favorite ones. Uh, you know, what are what are some of yours? Uh, so I'll go with a personal one and, and then as a fan. Um, so we have mentioned the Barzilla Golfathon, you know, on a few occasions um, on, this, you know, on this podcast. When I tried out for the Lake team, um, the coach at the time, he would like grade, like, how'd you hit your woods? How did you hit your irons? How did you chip? How did you putt? And then you would play nine holes. Um, I was the low man by, you know, a long shot. Like I may have shot like 41 or 42 in the nine hole stretch, you know, to get on the team. Um, and I received the highest marks on everything except for putting. I mean, and really, I have been fighting putting basically my whole life. Well, one time at the Golfathon, we're playing the four four man scramble at the Falls. I don't, did you ever play the Falls? I did. I played one tournament out there. Uh, so I think it's a New Elm uh, way out there. You know, on your way out west. Uh, I think it's closed now. Uh, we had the the golfathon out there a few times, and basically, like these greens were ridiculous. Like I remember on the first hole, I had like a thirty footer. I putted it; it got to a, within a foot of the hole. The sucker came all the way back to me and passed me by five feet. So I had like a thirty five footer left. I'm like, nope. I just picked the ball up. Said that's not fair. I'm just, I'm not taking that. So we're playing in the scramble. I nailed like seven putts of 30 feet or longer. And and these greens are, you know, they were bent grass greens. So, I mean, they're just like ungodly undulations. And I can't, I, I, I can't speak for you. I can only speak for myself. There's a, there's a point when I'm putting when I can just see the line. I can see the path the ball's going to take. And as long as I can get it on that path, the sucker's going in. And it doesn't matter how long that putt is. And then there's just some times where I just don't feel good over it. And I don't see it. And then there's times where it's like, I can't even get my hands 
hit the ball straight. But on that day, I was, I mean, and we won. And, and the, you know, if you'd get to go to the golfathon this year, we, which we hope will have you, if you win the scramble, if your team wins the scramble, I mean, everybody's winning about 50 bucks a piece. I mean, it's, you know, a pretty substantial bet. And we won on that day because we shot like about 63, 64, which, you know, at the falls, not a bad number for a four-man scramble. That, that's a brutal golf course. Um, personally watching the game, I think the zone, the one I remember most growing up was Mike Scott as an Astros fan. 1986. This is obviously before Tim was born. Um, so I remember running home from school because they would always play the ALCS and during the, uh, during the day. And it was one of those deals. He shut them out twice and he would have gone game seven and everybody knew the Mets weren't touching him. They, they didn't have a chance. And so that's, that's why game six was such a big deal. And we lost game six, didn't never got the chance to see Mike Scott pitch that game. But it was one thing that year he clinches the division with a no hitter, which is something I don't think has ever happened since then. Didn't happen to that point up till then. And he had 300 plus strikeouts, which I think Verlander and Cole did, you know, back in uh, 2019 when they were one and two in the Cy Young. But that's, I mean, just, and you look at Mike Scott. You look at Justin Verlander, you look at Garrett Cole, and you're like, I could see them being a really good pitcher. You look at Mike Scott, and you're like, if I was running a buffet, I'd, I think I'd close shot before that guy came through the door. Uh, but for some reason, that season, he just, I mean, it, he was in the zone. He could not be hit. Uh, maybe some cheating going on when we look back on it. Maybe some scuff, you know, baseballs. But you know what? I don't, at, a, at a certain point, that doesn't matter. You know what's coming, and they still couldn't hit it. Yeah, the the no hitter to close the the eighty six uh, NL West out is always a pretty cool, pretty cool feat. And another what if too, because you, you see that Mets team um, beat the Red Sox in the World Series, knowing that you had Mike Scott ready to go in Game Seven. Um, one of my favorite zones, Astros wise. Always, I mean, the run that Carlos Beltran went on in the 2004 um, NLDS, then into the NLCS, I, to this day, have never seen, maybe Randy Rose Arena came close to that, but Beltran still out-homered him. I mean, that was, I mean, he he was so good. He, he made Tavares punch a bullpen phone and break his hand. He was so pissed off. He was hitting pitches off his shoe tops into the right center field stance. That was that was one of the most unbelievable um, just run. Like, the ball looked like a beach ball to that guy, and he couldn't miss. Every swing he made was was clutch. He made great defensive plays. He was, he was everything for that team that season from the moment we traded for him. But, I mean, he... He was a whole nother level in that 2004 postseason. Um, and and then golf wise, you know, I, I'm with you, Scott. When I'm when I'm putting well, I don't I don't necessarily see the line. I feel it. You know, I call it call it soul putting. Um, when I was growing up, there was a movie on the Disney Channel called Brink, and 
there's about inline skating and hardcore inline skating. And there was like one team was team pup and suds and they skated for love of skating. And the other team was team X blades. They skated for the money. And so they always used to say soul skating, you know, so I use soul putting long story short. I just feel it sometimes. And when I'm playing well, I don't necessarily need to take my time to line the line up on the ball and hit it on this line. I just feel it. This is where it's going to go. I'm going to hit it on this you know, path that I'm feeling. If it goes in, it goes in. And I've had a couple different times in my life where just making pots, right? Like I'm not a guy who normally makes a ton of pots, but one I can think of is my, my, um, I finally have a round of high school competition. We're playing district in 2008 out at, uh, battleground. And, you know, all of a sudden I, I start stringing together some birdies. Uh, you've got, Eight is a par five, ten's a par five, eleven's a par five. So I birdie all three of those. And now like all of a sudden I'm like one under or something like that. Maybe even somewhere along those lines. But I'm just cruising. And I'm making ridiculous par after ridiculous par. I'm getting up and down from everywhere. And then all of a sudden we get to that par four, big dog leg left, water all all along the left side, and a big tree. Uh, guarding the fairway. You need like 260 carry, um, but you can't carry it too far. You're going to run through into um, into the into the woods on the other side. I think it's like 14, maybe 15. Um, but all of a sudden I have this thought of, this could be my last round of high school golf. You know, if, uh, if my teammates don't pick it up, we might not get out of district. And then smack hook right into that. Right into that tree. That zone was over. I limp home with like a 79, maybe even higher. And, uh, you know, the zone ended quickly. But I, the first time I shot even par was one of those days, though, Scott, where, um, you know, even my bad shots weren't bad. Like when you when you hit it thin and and it just rolls up 10 feet next to the hole or when you hit it fat, and it, the, the ground's so dry that it still rolls out at a nice – thing for you where just the golf gods are in your favor and and you just can't miss that day everything got up and down every putt went in and that first time I shot even par you know I had a a five footer on 18 to to do it and it was a pretty big side hill break and uh you know hands are shaking never done this before and and you know like I like just hit a good putt don't know how I couldn't do it again if you asked me in that situation probably but, you know, I was just in the zone that day. And I, and I, you know, everything that was supposed to happen the way it did, did, because that was just my day. You know, sometimes it's just your day out there. Yeah, unfortunately, I haven't been able to put it all together. I had a similar tournament um, my senior year. Uh, what's funny is I was describing this to my daughter. I, I took, um, I was on the newspaper staff, you know, the, the newspaper we used to do at Lake. Because I knew I was going to go into journalism, which obviously didn't end up happening for me, but um, I knew at that point I was. And I was like, you know what? And, and I couldn't take the golf class. So I'm like, you know, screw it. I'll figure it out. Go to the, the tournament before district was at Sasha Harbor. And we weren't, I think we did, you know, I'm sure y'all did like the shotgun start. And, and so we did kind of the same thing. And so 
it was kind of a weird configuration. So I finished on the uh, I finished on the shore nine, and I had played fourteen holes. And this is back when before the Harbor Nine was even built. So it was like south and shore. So I had four holes left. I had you know par four, par three, par four, par three. Um, so that was part of the Harbor Nine that you know kind of became uh, the, that was the South Nine back then. I'm even par through 14 and I'm thinking, you know, I'd never shot anywhere near, I mean, I'd never broken 80 in a tournament. And what's so funny is, is that, uh, coach Williams at the time had a rule. If you broke 80, you automatically qualified for the next tournament. And so I'm just like, I don't give a shit. I'm out there, you know, and, and I'm making putts off the green. I'm doing all this crap. And then of course you get to the last four holes, which is kind of like a separation. You're changing nines. And I get to that point where you start to think, man, maybe I could win this damn thing. And I'm six over in the last four holes, 78. Still make it to district without having to qualify, but that was the end of my golf career. And, and you know, I'd, I'd have guys on the team say, hey, you know, are you going to go out for the tour? And are you going to go out and put for college? It's like, have you seen me at tournaments? I freaking suck. So, uh, yeah, I'm not, uh, and I hate, and I've had people always want to play for money, and and it's just something I've never really enjoyed. I never enjoyed high pressure gambling. Um, I know Tim offline, maybe he can explain this experience, but he talked about going to a uh, sports psychologist. It's probably something I should have done when I was in high school, but it's just something that you know my parents are both educators, and so we really couldn't afford to do any of that kind of stuff. Um, I I don't know if mine helped at all, Scott, because uh, I most of my golf career was funded off my father's restaurant, and 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 by that I mean like I'm very fortunate that people liked his food and were willing to trade with us, and so all my lessons were paid for in pasta, as was my one and only psychiatrist visit, where the guy started the process, and then before we had meeting number two, died. Oh, literally, he died. So I was cracked open, but I wasn't sewed back up together again like Humpty Dumpty. I was brains spilling out on the table and was I, I still struggled I, mentally on the golf course. Like it I am not hard to rattle. I did you know what I um I actually had a guy and I guess I, I, I said I didn't have one, but I kinda did. There was a guy I don't know, was Ravenel ever open? When, when you were in high school, so that's back. Um, it was it bordered on champions, I think. Um, and so there was a guy as a pro out there. His name was Dr. Clay. Um, and one of the things that I still remember him telling me was, like, he did this little thing. Okay, we're playing in a pro amateur. I'm your pro. I've just knocked it in the water on the par three. We're playing a two-man scramble. Okay, tell me what you're thinking. And so I'm going through my pre-shot. I'm doing all this crap. And I'm thinking, I'm telling him, I'm thinking about my grip, thinking about this, that, and the other. And he says, you just lost. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? He says, so the human mind can concentrate on two things at one time. And one of those two things has to be the target. Has to be. You know, where do you want this thing going? So basically, you can have one swing thought. And that's it. 
And so it's, it's interesting you said that because as soon as you gave me that, as soon as you said that scenario, I thought nice and smooth middle of the green. Exactly. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. That's what my first thought there after now retraining myself was nice and smooth, easy of the middle of the green. Well, and, and how many times? And 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 this has probably happened to me probably more than it's happened to you. Um, but I'm sure it's happened to you at some point where you're saying, okay, whatever you do, don't hook this. Whatever you do, don't hook this. And what do you do? Yeah, that's the <laughs> mind. That's the human mind. I, I love playing golf with my father-in-law. He's an amazing guy. And and I feel bad saying stuff to him sometimes because most times when we play together, he pays for my round. But when he gives you numbers to things, it's it's always, uh you know, water on the left at 230, this over here. Uh, he always lists out the trouble, right? I don't want to know about the trouble. I don't think about the trouble. I think about target line and number. That's all that I want to think about. Because when I start thinking, I need to carry this, I need to stay away from this, that's when you go in that. Um, I, I remember yeah. I remember reading this story real quick, Scott. Growing up, that changed the way I thought about golf. It was talking about a blind golfer. And for, for those of you who don't know, like yes, blind people can play golf. And they rely very heavily on their caddy. Like more than you could imagine, more than the regular caddy, their caddy lines them up, tells them what club to hit, make sure they, you know, know what they need to do. And then they step away and the blind person hits the ball. Well, this best blind player on the blind, you know, tournament has someone different caddying for him as his dad's normally the caddy, but he's got uh, a reporter caddying for him this round. And he tells him, Hey, one thirty, you got it over the water. Let it rip. We fats it right into the water. His dad calls the caddy over and he says, hey, man, um, use the blindness to his advantage. He doesn't know that there's water. Just tell him 130. And it goes to show you that even your handicap can be an advantage because if you don't know it's there, you don't have to worry about it. But the moment that you told him you got to carry the water, it comes right into play. Yeah, and that and and the best story yeah that I could tell on that one. Um, but my thought is, I never want to hear how much I want to carry. What I want is what's the distance. Like if I need to lay up to water, that's when I want to know distance. Like if I need, if I know that don't hit it past two hundred. Okay, then I know you know what club you know. Back in the day when I could actually hit the ball two hundred yards, I, I knew which club you know. Uh, I could do. Um, so the first time I'm playing Tour 18, uh, I'm sitting there playing. Uh, we're playing Amen Corner. I can't remember what holes it is on the actual Tour 18, but you know, you know Tour 18. I'm playing that par three. First time I ever played it, I stuck it a foot away. Because the best time to play a course is the first time you play a course. Because you don't know what's hard. You just go out there and play. If you play like, you know, Tim has mentioned that Sasha Harbour has been his kind of um, uh, Achilles heel, we'll say. Um, but there are, you know, holes like even Mag Creek where I, I love first, Mag Creek. First time, was the, first time was the worst time for me at Sasha Harbour. Uh, but like there's holes at Mag Creek where it's like now I would sit there and say, I don't know how I'm going to do this because they're just holes. Well, there are holes out there where I've just played bad. And so it gets into your head and you're like, oh, God, I can't, you know. 
Which is Mad silly. Creek was my, Mad Creek was my summer home for two years, though. So that's the other way for me of like, I've got a positive memory on every single home. Well, home. no. And, and there are holes out there where it's like, I'm going birdie. It's like, I know, I mean, there's holes out there where I feel not, this is great. This lines up for me perfectly. I know what I'm doing. Um, and so it's funny how golf works that way. And, and, and in any course that you play often enough, there's that feeling, there's positive and negative where it's like, I'm confident I'm going to do this or, oh shit. Yeah. What, what, I think everybody know? has a hole they hate, right? Yeah. Like even on my home course, there's a, a 200 yard par three is number 15 and i've had so many good rounds coming into this fucking 15th hole where i now have to you know because in the summertime it's not that big of a deal but in the winter time because the wind blows out there 15 20 miles an hour and it's 40 degrees and i've got to hit a knockdown four iron and try and hit it close like yeah i hate that hole and it's ruined many a good fucking round yeah i grew up playing uh when I, st- I started playing golf like when i was about maybe seven or eight years old and my parents had a place in trinity texas uh, called westwood shores i don't know if you've heard of it, it still exists um and there's a hole out there number six it's an innocuous hole it's like 350 straight no water but the thing is is that that course is so tight if you miss the fairway, you're OB. Period. And so, even when I was hitting my driver well, I never hit my driver on the hole. I mean, I would stick out and get a seven iron, and 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 just because the hole would open up a little bit for your second shot. It's like I don't care if I have 180 into this green. I cannot hit any long iron or driver. Else, it's going to go OB. And I could have hit every single fairway, uh, you know, up until that point. Doesn't matter. And that was just the mentality. Um, so I think we've. Um, I think we've to, gone from we've gone from in the zone to out of the zone. zone yeah, I think so. About falling out of it, but um, you know, real quick before I move on, just want to mention some of my favorite clutch athletes. You know, we, we've talked about a lot of them, but you know, when I think clutch, I think Tiger. You know, there's no there's no more clutch guy to be than Tiger. Uh, you can throw Tom, you can throw Michael Jordan, all those guys in there. Um, but I, I bet the house on tiger. If I could, you know, if, if someone has to make a putt, I'm keeping my house, I'm picking tiger. What, you know, what I wish you would able to do is like, you're just talking about tiger. I wish we could go back and find a way, uh, maybe we can do this in heaven where tiger can take on peak Jack who can have peak Ben Hogan, who can have peak Bobby Jones. Give them all the same equipment, you know, give them all like an even playing field as far as that concerned. And let's see who would go lowest. I mean, I've heard some stories. Um, Dan Jenkins used to go to TCU. And so he, he told stories about Ben Hogan because they would always play at, uh, at Colonial where Hogan shot a 68 at Colonial did not make a putt longer than a tap in. I mean, I mean, Hogan, would be up there. Nicholas, I think certainly like 86 is a great moment. 46 years old. Once the masters comes from behind one of the great back nines ever. Um, but again, I just, I think that goes into zone. Yeah. That goes into being, he went into a zone, but, but he would, I mean, he, but he's a clutch player. Yeah. He had his clutch performances. And I think, um, you know, Curtis strange winning back to back us opens, I think was a, it was a huge deal. 
Um, I think Seve Ballesteros had more um, wins than, I think, still historically than anybody on the European Tour ever. Uh, I think I, I read that right. I think Seve's right. a great example of clutch. I think because, to me, clutch is got to do this in the biggest moment. And, and Seve oftentimes wasn't always in the best positions he was he was this it was the escape artist right he he was before tiger could do the things he could do out of the woods and besides the green and all that sevy was the guy so i think sevy is a great example of one of those clutch guys of like another one you got to bet the house on an up and down sevy's a pretty good guy to bet the house on for getting this ball up and down yeah you mentioned tom brady and i think certainly tom brady is going to you know is going to be there but to me Again, this is part of my, you know, growing up. Joe Montana sure. was the guy, Absolutely. you know, was the guy. 81 NFC Championship game, <laughs> you know, Super Bowl two-minute drill to beat the Bengals. I mean, it was, you know, there was very little. And he was a lot more clutch than Steve Young. I think Steve Young just played on, you know, when he won, the 49ers just bulldozed everybody. I mean, yeah. he didn't need to be clutch. Um. And I think, you know, people who are from my, probably my parents' generation would say Johnny Unitas uh, was probably that guy. Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, I think the, the best part about the clutch conversation is that no matter what age you are, you have a guy from your era who was clutch uh, that you would go to war with uh, in, in, in any sport. Like to me, Rockets... I'll go dream, but I could sit there and see somebody who's younger going hardened, and and I could sit there and, and uh, at least in a regular season, um, maybe regular season. But I don't uh, want harden in the clutch. Yeah, but I, I take T Mac. Yeah, Mac thirteen points and oh, that whatever. game was that game was you talk about the zone. That was a zone shot right there. I mean, he was yeah. out of his mind. Um, but yeah, there was guys, you know, and I think. You look around the leagues, and if we just stay out of Houston, there are certainly players, you know, 80s, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. I mean, those are guys that are clutch. I think, you know, in the 90s, you got your Jordan. And then I think you got Kobe, you know, I think in, in the aughts. Um, then Steph. And Steph Curry, certainly. LeBron, maybe to a lesser extent. I think LeBron has kind of had some moments where he didn't come up big. And LeBron so, always makes the right – the thing about LeBron is LeBron makes the right play versus like those other guys want to take the shot, right? LeBron has no problem passing with two seconds left if it means that his player has a wide-open look versus Steph Curry will still jack up a shot because Steph Curry is like, I got this shit, yo. So I think that's where LeBron – LeBron's clutchness is that he's always going to make the right play whether or not he takes the shot or not. Okay, so – I'll go by sport. We'll take Houston athletes out of this because I think that that would be too easy. Or hard in some cases, yeah. depending on the sport. Who do you think is the most clutch athlete in baseball right now? Right now? Not not a Houston Astro. Not a Houston Astro. Most clutch in baseball right now. Um, gosh, that's tough. That's tough, Scott. Maybe uh, I think it's got to be a good closer, maybe, or even no. God, you're putting me on a pedestal here. Uh, maybe Acuna. I guess I'd go Acuna. 
I think that's a solid pick. I think. Um, well, you know what, Schwarber. Schwarber's a Schwarber's yeah. a guy who's been clutch his whole life. He hits so much better with runners in scoring position. His playoff numbers are fantastic for several different teams. He's been on World Series runs. I'm changing to Schwarber. I think what's really rough is the guy I'm going to pick is Otani. Um, I was thinking about that, but when has he ever even had a chance to be clutch? He has. He has. I mean, he has, but he, he plays for the they, Angels. They haven't meant. Yeah, it hasn't meant. It's like anything. picking an Oakland A. Hasn't meant anything. Yeah, which that's, means it's not clutch. Well, but he's still like uh, to me. Clutch is like when you come up and like, absolutely, I need this right now. But does it matter yeah. if you're not in a playoff crunch? Like, do you really need it, right? If you're 30 yeah. games out of it, are there really clutch situations? I think is, but that's a whole nother, that's a measuring of the statistic, right? Like, I think if you're going by what his numbers are, seventh inning or later, or, you know, runners in scoring position, you may well have the like to stand on there. Because I think, you know, and unfortunately, he's kind of sort of retired. I don't know if he, that's going back and forth. But to me, what like Scherzer and, and Strasburg did in 2019, the World Series. Like that was pretty. That was pretty clutch. Those two guys. Yeah, for um, sure. Scherzer's a great pick. Um, and that's you know, and unfortunately he, you know, of course, he he ran into a buzzsaw that was the Astros this last week. But, um, yeah, it, it's tough. And that father times undefeated. Yeah, that is true. And so, all right. So let me shift you to football. So I, I'm going to give you the same Texans rule, but that's going to be easy because Texans really don't do anything. So it's Mahomes. But, Mahomes. It's, it's Mahomes. Is that even is that even questionable? No, I don't think so. Maybe quarter. maybe Tucker from from Baltimore, the kicker with balls of steel. But other than that, like who else can you pick? Yeah, from uh, from a quarterback position, certainly. Like there's guys like you know, man, you know, there's so many receivers who I think dominate the game nowadays. I mean, I think they've taken over, you know, in place of the running backs. Like to me, like watching Stefan Diggs on Monday night, his team didn't win, but he made some really big plays down the stretch um, as a receiver. So, you know, he's one of those. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins was that guy, you know, when he was in Houston, didn't so much now. Um, and, and I don't know if that's age or whether, you know, the Titans suck. I prefer to think it's because the Titans suck, but um all right, so last one, basketball. Who's your guy? I think it's Curry. Curry right now, I think, is the guy that I'd want taking a final shot over anybody else in the league. Yeah, it was yeah, Curry. Remember it was briefly um Durant. It was briefly uh Kawhi Leonard, very briefly. He had but, you want to talk about a run. I mean he had yeah. a good season, right? But he uh well he he was he was the he was the Spurs best player though when they were winning titles. So he I mean won he had, one he won one title with them. He won he with the Raptors. Lost the Heat. Yeah, so he, he won had, one with the Raptors. Yeah, so yeah, you know, he's just fortunately he's kind of like uh what you were describing where he couldn't, you know, just couldn't stay healthy like similar to some other guys. All right, so I know everybody loves our scumbags, but we're not there yet, folks. The Houston Texans played a game. Just a little quick hit. Little... A quick 10-minute spot here before we get to our scumbags. So i um, just going to mention a couple of guys, and then we'll kind of talk about some general thoughts here. So what's your thoughts on C.J. Stroud to begin with? I was pleased 
I was, um, I think he was put into a poor situation and I thought, um, I thought he made some good reads at times. I was, I thought he missed some open throws, but I think that's to be expected. And I think we're going to get him killed. Yeah, I think, you know, and they, they've been talking about it, but that one play where he put Michael Dieter out there at right tackle position, he's never played. And you're going to ask him to block a defensive end one-on-one on his first play. And what happens to defensive end, sack Stroud, sack fumble, that's pretty much the ball game. I mean, I, I couldn't believe, you know, watching that. Um, the thing was is that there, there's kind of there's kind of a curve you kind of grade these guys on. Number one, you, you, you're going to compare them to the rest of the league, which is hard because I don't even know if he's top 20 if you compare the rest of the league just based on one game. But I think you can easily claim he was better than the other two rookie quarterbacks starting their first game. Certainly better than Bryce Young. I mean, Bryce Young kind of had a had a rough day. Anthony Richardson did some things. Anthony Richardson is just a freak of nature, and so he's going to do you know some athletic things. But you can claim Stroud is the best quarterback of the bunch, and probably had the worst situation of the three. Yeah, the offensive line that they put out there is atrocious for the fact that you've got a rookie quarterback. Like we've seen it with David Carr, we saw it with Deshaun Watson, where the guy got a punctured fucking lung and had to take a bus to Jacksonville instead of the team plane. Like at what point do you stop trying to kill young quarterbacks? I don't know, but all things considered, he didn't throw an interception. I I don't blame the fumble on him. And I thought he made good reads. I I saw him work through his progressions. Um, You know, I think he relied, you could kind of see him relying a lot on Robert Woods on third downs, especially early in the, you know, in the second quarter, um, but you know what? Like if, if you just trust this guy to get open, go for it. But at some point you already have to spread the ball a little bit, but at the end of the day, um, going into that environment, I thought he performed admirably. Like, is that, is that performance there going to win you a Super Bowl? No. But do I feel like he's a bust at this point? No. Like, I feel like. I feel like every time he's taken the field in front of us, there's been improvement. And at the end of the day, this roster is still not done being built. So if he continues to show improvement every game this season, and then we continue to improve that roster, that's a good thing. And so I, I, I you know, I feel like he played well. Let me throw a name back at you though, Scott, because I got another one. Last year's first round pick, CJ, uh, um, Stingley. So I think it's kind of funny because I was looking at PFF scores and the PFF scores pro football focus. They did not like his performance, but here's the thing. He was guarding OBJ for most of the game. OBJ had two catches. One of those catches was on Shaq Griffin. The one, the big catch was was Shaq Griffin tailing him. He did have that one, you know, pretty bad. Which was bullshit. No, that was a bullshit pass interference. It was, yeah, but, and so to me, and, and cornerbacks are so hard to judge because you have the guy with the Jets on Monday night has three interceptions. I mean, that's, that's remarkable. But the thing is, is that, and we saw this with Deion Sanders when he was playing cornerback in his day, they just didn't throw his, the ball to that side of the field. I mean, so he completely shut it down. 
And so when you look at a guy and you sit there and say, well, he doesn't have any pat tackles. He doesn't have any passes defended. He doesn't have any interceptions. It's like, well, but look what OBJ that's did. That's good. Yeah, look that's at, good. To me, that's a good thing, yeah. right? That They didn't even look his way because Stingley shut that shit down. Yeah, look at OBJ. OBJ had two catches, and one of them was not on Stingley. So, I mean, he allows one catch and he has one penalty. Even if you're going to give him that penalty, uh, in, in which is debatable, that still would have been two catches. And a caliber of a receiver of, as OBJ should be. I mean, he should be having more than that. Now, what I'll sit there and say is, in, in, and that's when you look at, say, a Will Anderson, which is the second guy I was going to bring up. So he does have his first NFL sack. Okay, good to get off the schneid there. But he applied the pressure when Lamar Jackson threw his only interception. So he's doing some things. He's, he's, he's making his presence known. He played a spectacular football game. Yeah, and, wow. and he did. Jonathan Grenard was another guy who was, you know, played a hell of a football game. I think you and I were texting about it. The moment that I saw that Petrie was going to be out of the second half, I, I said, there it goes, because he was all over the place in the first half. And I, I saw him coughing up blood after that sack on Lamar Jackson. And I, I knew right there we were in trouble because he was the heart and soul of that defense on Sunday for the first half. He was flying. You want to talk about a guy who took a – who was already pretty good last year. He took a jump forward. Um, everybody talked about it at camp. Man, he looked good out there. And, and the Texans' defense was fa- fantastic in the first half. We had no business being in that football game other than the fact that our defense was straight balling. So Jimmy Ward, he was out for the game, so he's the other safety. And what I think about Jalen Petrie is that when you look at him last year, the only thing you could say negative about him is that he had a horrible tackling season. Well, question is, why is your safety having to make so many tackles in the running game? I mean, your front seven was terrible. This linebacking core is 300% better than the linebacking core you were throwing out last year. Henry Otoa Toa um, had a really good game. Um, you had Christian Harris had a sack. Um, and then, of course, you know, you have, uh, you know, Littleton making a few, a few plays here and there when he got in. Um, and Perryman, another, you know, just a really good veteran linebacker you brought in. Um, I think the, the now here, here's where I think things went off the rails and where I think that it's going to be, we're going to need some improvement from our offensive coordinator. You ran three screenplays behind the line of scrimmage to Noah fucking Brown. Why? Why? You know, Tank Dell, he had three catches, you know, and he, he showed out. I mean, there was a, a BS uh, holding call on, on uh, Laramie Tunsil that ruled out a really good Tank Dell catch. But Tank Dell's there. If you want to run that screenplay, he's the guy you run the screenplay to. Not to know Brown. Another, there was another questionable one, too, where – Texans had a long drive. It was like third and one or fourth and one. And, and the play that they drew up was a motion behind the line of scrimmage and then run a screen to that side that was blown up right away. Yep. Like you've got a downhill running back in Pierce who, quite frankly, with everything that was going on, played pretty well, right? Like his, from where I'm standing, 
his yards after contact probably had to be on average three or four because he's getting touched behind the line of scrimmage almost every time they hand him the freaking football. And he still was gaining one, two, three yards here or there. So I don't know. And even when they did run the ball with him on, on, on short yarded situations, it was always like long stretch plays to the outside. Like it was, I definitely think that Slowick has some, has some growing room. And I think, when you look back at the quarterback play, I think you could have called a better game for CJ Stroud. Oh, I, yeah. I think I think I think if you look at say like a Gary Kubiak, I think Kubiak would have given Stroud a better game plan. I really well, do. No, like- and that naked bootleg on fourth down was absolutely ridiculous. Um, and they were trying that play all day long. Never fooled them. I mean, that used to be Kubiak's bread and butter, but you know, and then the other fourth down sequence where you know you're going to try and sub in peers but then they have to sub you're going to run it quick but now you can't run it quick and then we're going to sit there and say you know what we're going to do we're going to do off tackle to the right hand side where you've got our backup right tackle in the game and it's like you've got an all pro tackle on your other side which also happens to be the longer side of the field in that moment run it to the left hand side fucking quarterback sneak if you listen, if you ever listen to Jason and Travis's Kelsey's podcast, ninety three percent chance of success on the quarterback sneak. Oh sure, Fucking sneak it. Sure, um, and they still haven't outlawed because I don't know if you watched the CBS pregame, but I don't know if you saw JJ Watt and Bill Cower getting oh, was, into JJ it. JJ was great. He was getting fantastic. In, getting into it over the uh, the uh, the push play, you know, kind of the rugby scrum. And Cowers like all, oh, uh, and he's like, "Man, that's Pittsburgh Steelers football you're talking about right there." I um, I thought JJ. I didn't see the pregame, but I saw the halftime show. I thought JJ was a delight. Yeah. I I don't know what he can't do. Like he is, he's kind of like Peyton, right? Like I knew Peyton would be great on TV. I knew it because he's just got that personality. I didn't know Eli would be as good as he is. Yeah. Eli's fantastic. Eli Eli and Peyton together. Eli's got that dry sense of humor and Peyton's just a big goofball corn dog like basically like the king of dad jokes like I could just imagine Peyton walking around in cargo shorts with like mid-calf white socks and new balance like I could just totally imagine him and the dad I just cut the lawn do, uniform. do you remember that uh SNL United Way commercial oh. with Peyton Manning just to, <laughs> one you know, of my favorites watch you teach your kids how to like break into cars and shit oh, like that please, you know, please watch your kids so Peyton Manning doesn't have to <laughs> It was great. Um, but yeah, I, I was impressed with Watt because you could see, like I watched Fox beforehand because, you know, unfortunately CBS has got like all religious, um, religious, you know, time before 11 o'clock on a Sunday. So, you know, I watched Fox and you had Julian Edelman uh, with Gronk and that was a struggle. Um, and some of the, you know, that pregame, pregame show with Fox is just, Gronk is, is terrible. Well, Gronk is terrible. On well, that head. whole, well, that whole thing is you had, you know, cause you had Sean Payton on that show last year and it was just like, Oh man, these guys are all wooden. You had Charles Woodson and, um, I can't remember who the other guys were, but it was just like the all wooden gang. And it's like second stream. So, so Fox is, uh, Fox is Bradshaw's on that one. Well, no, so no, but yes, yeah, the show before that though, it's not oh, any of those guys, and so it's like basically all your second string 
Gotcha. Yeah, you know, maybe like you have your reporter. Um, this is the the late late show, right? Yeah, where you, like where you have. I think I, I can't remember who. Aaron the Andrews comes on with a nice feel good story. I can't remember who it was. Who's like the the reporter? Because um, you, you you usually have like your you know on ESPN you have your guy like Chris Mortensen and and uh, and and those guys, but the guy on there. I want Tom to, Rinaldi? No, I want to say it's Jason Locke and Confora, uh, who... Um, the liar. Well, what I loved about him is uh, John McClain in Houston used to call him Jason Locke Confirma. That's the only <laughs> thing I liked about John McClain, because like, I don't like John McClain, yeah, but I hate Locke and Fora more. That, that was like, oh, yes, that was awesome. And it wasn't him, but it was a guy like him, and you're just like... It was like when Peter Vesey used to be on in the NBA pregame show, and he would just you know, throw out all this crap or like, you know, which you, one I hated was when they used to bring the guy who did, uh, impersonations, Nick Bakai. Oh uh, yeah. He was, he would do Gruden and he'd do Madden. And it was just like, what the fuck well, are the, we doing? You're giving 10 minutes to Nick Bakai on the NFL well, pregame the, show. Well, the worst one was, do you, have you ever heard of a guy named Norm Hitchkiss? No. So Norm Hitchkiss was on the, Arlington version of HSE way back in the day. And so ESPN tries to bring him on as, and they call this segment against the norm. And so here you got this guy. You know, the Patriots are 13 and 4 on a Sunday after a full moon when there's a left-handed quarterback playing backup for the other team. And you're like, are you fucking kidding me with this? I mean, what, what are we doing? That's like uh, the shit that you hear on Sunday mornings when you're like driving somewhere at 8 a.m. You're like, these are my guaranteed picks of the week. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, right now, I'm picking nothing but winners. You're going to love You're going to love my picks this week. You're going to fucking love them. It's like if you got 90% of your picks, you're on, on the radio. Your butt's my going to free pick. betting guide will take you from living in an apartment to owning a mansion. It's like, you know. 67% winners on the year. If I'm 90%, I'm living in Vegas. Are you kidding me? I'm I'm just I'm at the uh, I'm at the MGM Grand every damn week. Great, there was a great I can't remember the name of it, but there was a great Matthew McConaughey Al Pacino movie, basically about that exact thing. They had like a TV show about gambling where uh, McConaughey was like a former NFL quarterback, and he was like the host of like the gambling show, giving his picks and all this other stuff. It was Al Pacino owned that network. I can't remember the name of it, man. That was a really, really good movie. That was one of my favorite episodes of The Simpsons, where the one where uh, Homer and Lisa start betting on football. Because basically, uh, Homer started off with uh, the character who was very clearly Jimmy the Greek, which I'm sure you've heard of. And he's like, and I'm going with the Broncos this week. I am 53%. You got to go with the Broncos. And then, you know, of course, the Broncos lose. And he comes back. Well, when you're right 53% of the time, it means you're wrong 47% of the time. You're like, yeah, pretty much. And then Lisa learns how to bet, and she never loses, which was uh, pretty awesome. Okay. So uh, I think we, we've skipped our Texans. We've got, got a flown past our Texans. Uh, so I think it is time for that special time of the week. Everybody loves it. It's scumbag time. Tim, who you got? 
I've got, uh, hopefully soon, former Rocket, uh, still on the team, Kevin Porter Jr. Uh, you know, obviously, domestic violence is, is something that I don't take lightly. And, you know, with someone, especially with, with Kevin Porter's history, I, I take it even more serious. But Kevin Porter was arrested on assault charges uh, after he fractured his, his girlfriend's vertebrae. Um, she is a WNBA player. She is not a, like, she's not some tiny little person, right? So he did some fucking damage to her. Uh, he, she had a fractured net vertebrae and a deep cut above her right eye. Uh, he's pleading not guilty, but I mean, he, they said he didn't stop hitting her until his girlfriend, who was former NBA player, Kasiri Gondresnik, uh, ran out in the hallway covered in blood. I don't know. I don't know who the scumbag is more here in this situation between Kevin Porter Jr. and and maybe even the Houston Rockets because Scott, you and I talked about this guy numerous times throughout the season for his immaturity, his inability to kind of get himself on the right path. Right, like he's been partnered or paired with with uh, John Lucas. He walked out of the middle of a game last year. He's shown his immaturity and his inability to just grow. And they, because he's got talent, they've kept him around. Um, I think the signs are on the wall for this guy. He was kicked off the team for assault college. And, and now, and now this, you know, obviously he's a scumbag for, for, for doing this. But I think at what point do we ask, are the Rocket scumbags for rostering this guy knowing what he's capable of just because he's talented? And it's it's the same issue the Astros had where they traded for Osuna uh, in 2019 where he had to answer to everybody in that locker room. But I, I hope he doesn't get that chance. I hope he doesn't get to talk to people in the locker room because I don't think he needs to be anywhere near the Houston Rockets in 2023. 100%. 100%. And I was going to say, because uh, we, we talked about text before this, but I actually looked on X and there was somebody who unrolled one of those you know lengthy, I guess, X's, tweets, whatever they're called, uh, where they went through all the things that he had been charged with and different things. They mentioned the event at USC, although there was no details. USC has managed to hide most of the details of that. Um, he has had two or three run-ins with the law where he hasn't been charged inexplicably. And I think what's frustrating on this level is that you and I probably both know people in high school who, because they were good at something, were able to skate on stuff for whatever reason. Like I think in between your time at Lake and in my time at Lake, I remember they caught the starting quarterback with marijuana in his locker. It was, you know, swept under the rug. He's playing quarterback the next Friday night. Everything's fine. Um, I don't know how much I hold the Rockets to account on this point just because they just they gave, gave a four-year extension. They, yeah, they, they gave they, – they, the problem is is that the initial trade to get him, they traded so little that it's like, okay, let's see if this guy can get his head on straight. But he was showing you signs. 
independent of what was going on off the court, he was showing you signs on the court. There was a game where he gets into a fight with Lucas, leaves, goes in the locker room, gets his stuff, drives freaking home during the game. And, you know, the Rockets, oh, well, uh, these things happen. Yeah. Okay. So basically, there's there's the human level of this thing, and there is the basketball level of this thing. On the human level, he needs to have the book thrown at him. He needs to absolutely, whatever the maximum jail time is, he needs to get. We saw this, you know, earlier this week with um, that 70s uh, show star, Masterson, ends up getting you know, 30 years. You can't tell me that there was stuff going on with that guy before these cases. And he would have been a perfect, you know, he's a perfect example of a guy because he has talent or with perception of talent. We're just going to let things slide. Well, you're absolutely correct. The Rockets should have cut him, you know, days ago, you know, right after this happened. I don't know why he's still on the roster, to tell you the truth. I mean, to me, basketball-wise, Thompson, the brief time he was uh, um, at that, you know, summer league, he definitely looks like a guy that, if not a starting NBA guard, a sixth man definitely, because you know he's big enough to play anywhere between point guard and small forward. He's a guy that you know I would rather see him in the lineup than than to watch you know Porter do what you know maybe one out of three games was a good game. But, you know, when you look at the end of the year, he's averaging 15, 16 points. And you're thinking, well, he looks pretty good because somebody has to average 15 or 16 points in the NBA. Uh, I mean, you had Jalen Green averaging 20 plus. I mean, somebody else had to score. So it was Kevin Porter Jr. But he wasn't efficient at it. And so I, I think, you know, oddly enough, I think the Rockets will be a better team. And, and hopefully in his sake maybe he'll learn something but not on my dime he's not and it's it's pretty clear the rockets um clubhouse turned on him and an hour ago they did wave him so um at least make an attempt to right their wrongs but i mean his teammates commented on a post of him like he posted a video of himself playing basketball Jalen green comments assaulting women is crazy shaking my head dylan brooks Damn, better prepare to learn Chinese because you're not going to play in the NBA. Like, these are your teammates. They don't want you. So, I'm glad the Rockets did this. Um, I would have liked to seen it immediately, though. Why does it take three days? Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, he's going to be playing with Rick Vaughn in the California Penal League is what I think. You know, Actually, I guess it'll be New York. Be a, be, yeah, they'll be playing he'll be against Rikers. each other. He'll be in Rikers. <laughs> you know, Ooh, I, I, place. I hope so, but so my scumbag moving on to my scumbag so i had the follow-up i had surgery on my nose i, I had the uh, balloon sinoplasty i had a deviated septum and the doctor said you know what you've got sleep apnea so here's what we want to do we want to get you with the inspire device and the de inspire device is basically an implant that you know that they put into your chest that keeps the back of your throat you know, from vibrating and doing that snoring thing and also, you know, helps out with the sleep apnea. And the beauty is, is that you don't have to wear a mask or anything like that for like when, when people wear CPAP. 
And they said it's like 98% effective is what the doctor said. So things are going well. I've got a free surgery coming before the end of the year. And so all I need to do is have Aetna to approve the surgery, which is, you know, our insurance company. Um, and at first they did. And so I'd gotten to the point where I needed, you know, another doctor to approve, you know, the procedure. And then all of a sudden I go in for my next checkup and they said, well, you're no longer approved for the surgery. And I was like, oh, why is that? Well, the first time they, they measure the number of times you have a 3% drop in oxygen over the course of the evening. Cause I had to wear this contraption for like a week to measure all this stuff. And they said, well, when you, it was 3%, you were over 15 times, which is the marker. So what they did was they measured 4% drop. And so you were at 14 and a half average. So just below that 15 mark. So you can't have it, but we're going to appeal. I was like, okay, well, that, that sounds fine. I'm not, I'm in no hurry to have the procedure done. I mean, I want, I would like to have it done before the end of the year, but you know, that's nice. Then they call me up yesterday when I'm on my way to the gym. Well, it hasn't been approved. Okay. Why hasn't it been approved? I said, well, they require a BMI of 32 or higher. And I'm sitting there racking my brain. It's like, Okay, I know that stands for body mass index. Is there anything else BMI could stand for? So finally, when she gets through her spiel, it's like, is BMI body mass index? She said, yep, it is. Yours is a 21, and they require a 32 or higher. So basically, in order for me to get the device to approve by it, now I'm going to have to put on about 100 pounds of fat. Uh I, I don't think I'm going there. Um, I think I'd rather, you know, uh, be fairly skinny and, and just without the device. So, you know, insurance company, basically what you have is you have people with bachelor's degrees who are making medical decisions. When the doctor's sitting there saying, this person needs this procedure done, you know, we ought to be doing this. That guy went to medical school. You have an English major sitting in, you know, an insurance office saying, nah, you came just short. You don't, you don't qualify. It's like, what the hell are we doing? And then, of course, that gets into the insurance debate, which is where we had when we were talking about the ACA, and that's where the conservatives come in, oh, they're going to have death panels. It's like, what in the fuck do you think private insurance is? It's a freaking death panel. They're the ones that are going to sit there and say, you know what, we're not going to approve your cancer treatment. What the hell? So this is where people start spending thousands of dollars out of pocket. That's when they have to set up GoFundMe so that they can afford cancer treatments because the insurance company says, no, you don't qualify for that treatment. What the hell? So politicians are sitting there saying, well, they're going to have death penalties. Well, what do you think we got now? Except now it's about a profit margin because I guarantee you, on January 1, when I'm not to pay for that procedure, all of a sudden, magically, oh, yeah, you can have that inspired device now. I guarantee it. January 1, they're going to be sending out a letter. Yeah, 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 we'll prove that now. Scumbags.
You know, I, I heard the perfect analogy the other day. Um, we don't have health insurance. We've got a health marketplace at the end of the day. Um, and it's we've allowed private businesses to seep their way into every aspect of our life to the point where a doctor recommends you for a surgery and the insurance company who doesn't know anything about you other than the fact of we've given this guy enough money already this year says no. And the doctor just has to go, well, shit, that sucks. I'm sorry. Your insurance company said no. Even though I, your medical doctor, who went to fucking medical school to know what I need to know, was told no by Rajesh, the guy on the phone here from customer support at Aetna. They're scumbags. You're absolutely right, Scott. Um, The sooner people realize how fucked our health insurance is and our health insurance industry is, the sooner we can just blow the whole thing up and start over. Like let's insurance shouldn't mean paying for a copay, paying for more stuff on top of it and paying monthly. That's not what insurance is like. That is again, it's a health marketplace. So, um, man, I'm sorry to hear that. Sorry for your wife that she has to keep hearing that, uh, snoring. I've been sleeping on the couch for months. I mean, it's, you know, it's just rough. No, but here's the deal. And, and and Tim is absolutely right about the health insurance. And this is what I hate. You know, we're, we talked about issue framing way back when we started the show. It's framed as healthcare reform. That's not what this is. This is insurance reform. We don't need better doctors and better nurses. What we need is a better way to pay for it. We are the only industrialized nation in the world that has for-profit private health insurance. The only industrialized nation in the world. Now, some countries have private companies that are running their public insurance, but they're not making a profit. They're certainly, they are paid an administrative fee and that's it. But anywhere else in the world, you can go to any doctor. You can get any medical procedure done. Now, certainly, if it's an elective procedure, you might wait a bit. But you're waiting here. So, I mean, it's really not any different. So, to me, at the very worst, we should be doing Medicare for all. If not, just a completely reinvented single-payer system. Because the other part of this is, is that how many times have you had to change private insurance when you've changed your job, Tim? Uh, well, every time. And well, I Private know- insurance, I mean, I don't want private insurance either, right? Like, cause I've had to go to the marketplace when my job didn't involve it. Then I have to go back to when my job has it. Then if my next job doesn't have it, I'm back on the marketplace. And every time, I can't have the same medicine I had when I worked for a company that was paying for my health insurance. And your wife is a teacher, so I know her insurance sucks because our insurance sucks. I'm 800 just, bucks a month for me to be on her insurance. I'm, yeah, yeah, we're we're close to a thousand if we did the whole family. And really my wife's working for a Fortune 500 company, but the thing is is that, you know, what happens if she leaves or she changes jobs and then we got to change all that. This is such bullshit. Single payer if you do a single payer system, it doesn't matter who you work for. You could work for yourself. You're getting the exact same care. 
So you want to talk about, and and to me, corporations should be, you know, lining up hand, you know, hand over fist to get this done, because that's a huge bill off their, you know, off their back. I mean, they could, you know, what they'll probably do is they'll end up giving that money to their shareholders as, you know, an increase. But you know, maybe some companies will sit there and say, we'll offer this as an additional salary, since we don't have to pay for it anymore. But either way. This is just silly. I mean, it's silly to have people get cancer in Houston, which is the best city in the world to have cancer in. But you know, have an insurance say, you know company sit there and say, "No, we're not. We're not paying for that procedure. You're going to have to do this other costly thing because it means we get more profit." I mean, what are we doing? It's sick. It's it's absolutely sick, but. That's about all the time we've got for tonight. Scott, it was a blast. Um, enjoyed kind of changing it up a little bit with you tonight. And, um, you know, just kind of talking a little bit more on the abstract about um, some of the things that we see every day in the sports world and, and maybe don't think to articulate. I'm muted. I want to take a quick moment to, you know, Tim's technical expertise and, you know, other things we have been able to load all of our episodes on my Substack. So if you are not a Apple podcast person, if you're one of the few people that's still on Android, uh, I feel sorry for you. I made the switch a couple of years ago and, and love iPhone. But if you're not on Spotify, if you're boycotting it because of, uh, you know, a certain uh, highly paid podcast guy who's, a scumbag of his own come to my Substack. it's where I, I've, i'm trying to load everything up there so i've got my political commentaries loading up some sports commentaries there and the podcast is there so just a one-stop shopping but tim where can the good folks find you i still find myself on twitter tim underscore 10 uh tim underscore costello 10 on twitter uh you can find me I'm sorry, you can find the podcast on Facebook at the Snap Hook Podcast. Um, and at some point, I think I, you know, I, I've talked to Scott about putting a thing or two up on on Substack. I might look into, you know, maybe a, an article on parenting for some of those people out there who looking for the advice from Daddy Poppins. Yeah, I think, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be on Twitter, to tell you the truth. I'm at S. Barzilla, but I, I don't know. I mean, every day I, I contemplate quitting. Um, I love my, you know, today the, the scumbag that I came up with seems like two times in a row on Twitter, the dumb tweet, she was talking about how, you know, she did the Lionel Hutz. Do you remember Lionel Hutz from the Simpsons, Tim? Where, oh, that was when Phil Hartman was still around. He was, he, he was a lawyer. Oh man, he was awesome. So he was talking about, well, conjecture and circumstantial evidence are types of evidence, right? <laughs> I mean, she pulled that off she's like they need to impeach biden they've got you know circumstantial evidence and it's like really do you, uh, do you understand the law or are you just you know talking out of your butt but anyway that's a different discussion for a different day uh thank you all so much for joining us here hopefully on a wednesday morning hopefully the rest of the week treats you well and we look forward to seeing you next week on the snap hook Thank you.
Thank you for tuning in to the Snap Hook and making Scott and I a part of your week. Wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and this outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snap Hook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snap Hook. Thank you.